0: All right, so great to see you all here this morning. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. Uh, We are in week six of this series, Dear Church. We're looking at some personal messages from Jesus uh, to different churches from the first century. They're inside of the book of Revelation. There are in chapters two and three, there are seven kind of distinct personalized messages, letters from Jesus to seven different churches. And we've been looking at them one by one uh, over the last several weeks. Next week is our final installment. I hope you'll be here for that. This is what I want you to do. If you would grab a Bible or you could use your phone and go to this passage right here, Revelation chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 7 through 13. It's the sixth letter we're going to look at today. If you're kind of unfamiliar with how the Bible is laid out, that's fine. Revelation is the very last book in the Bible, so this should be very easy to find. I've really enjoyed some of the conversations that I've had uh, with you guys about Uh, this series. I've heard some great things about things you're experiencing in small group. And some of the letters, some of the messages that Jesus gave to some of these churches, some of them are rough, right? Like some of them are just hard messages to hear. But there's something that I hope really just comes jumping off the page at us today. And and maybe maybe you haven't thought about it this way. So if you're a note taker, write this down. Jesus is always leaning in. He's always leaning in. He's always leaning in relationally. And these messages that he writes to these churches, even when he has something hard to say, he is leaning in towards people. The guy who wrote um, the book of Revelation is really a letter. And uh, the guy who physically wrote it down was a man named John. During Jesus' life and ministry, if Jesus had a best friend, it was probably this guy. Um, and he also wrote a biography of Jesus's life. We know it as the Gospel of John, and in the very first chapter, this is how he described Jesus, that he came to us full of grace and truth. And I bet you know people who are really just full of truth, and maybe you know people who are full of just grace, but Jesus is full of grace and truth, and everything that we hear from him should be read and received with that understanding that it's all an expression of grace and truth so let's look at revelation chapter 3 start in verse 7 to the angel and the church of philadelphia write these are the words of him who is holy and true so we're reading a letter to a network of house churches in the city of philadelphia that city had a couple of nicknames one of the nicknames for this city was little athens And the reason it was called Little Athens is because it had many, many, many uh, temples to worship all kinds of idols and and, and pagan gods. And Jesus is saying to these people, I know that there are all kinds of things fighting for your attention, for your affection, for your allegiance. I alone am the one who is holy and true. The one who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds, See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar and the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches." This is full of grace and truth. We want to receive the grace. We want to feel, we want to know the truth. But we can't know that unless we really understand the symbolism and the references that are going on in this letter. This is apocalyptic literature, which means all kinds of symbols and imagery is used. And we have to unlock that to really know what it is and understand what we just read. Let's start with this one. Key of David, what is that about? Simply means this. Jesus is the authority over all things. That's what that means. Talked about a door, opening the door, shutting the door. No one can open what I shut and vice versa. That just shows this another way to express that Jesus is the authority. What he, he can do what he wants. He can allow in whoever he wants. He can hold out whoever he wants. But there's also another aspect of imagery here that we're going to see in a few minutes. It means there's an opportunity for ministry with guaranteed success. I just want to ask you this question. Think about this for a second. Imagine if Jesus sent a message to us today and we knew it was from him and he said, listen, I can't guarantee this is going to be easy, but I guarantee you will be successful in the mission that I have given you. Is there anything that we couldn't face? Is there any obstacle that we wouldn't be willing to navigate? What is one of the things that they had to face? Well, he uses this language, the synagogue of Satan. It's completely understandable. We, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but if you weren't here for that, it's completely understandable. If you hear that and you're like, that feels a little racist, like a little ethnically insensitive, like that just feels wrong. I can understand that. I don't think that's the case, but I can understand that impression. What you need to know is this is really about those who conspired with the Roman government to harm believers. And to make sense of that, you got to know this is not talking about all Jewish people. It's a handful at this time in history, in the, in the Roman Empire, it was the law that you had to worship Caesar as God on earth. There was only one group of people in the entire empire who were given an exception to that. Do you know who it was? It was Jewish people. Now, all the first followers of Jesus, they were, they had, they were Jewish, and now they're trusting in Jesus as the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. Not At this point in history, not every believer is formerly Jewish, but many 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 probably the vast majority grew up ethnically jewish culturally jewish religiously jewish and now they're trusting in jesus and what was going on is that some people in the jewish community maybe their former friends or family members were saying to the government they're fake jews you should make them worship caesar as a god knowing that if christians were hauled in and they said, you listen, you have to, they were told you have to follow and worship Caesar that they would refuse. And what do you think happened to them? They'd be killed. This week I was reading about a group of six Christian men in North Africa in the city of Carthage. They were brought before the proconsul, proconsul of that city. His name was Saturnius. And he said, listen, you got to drink a cup of wine and hell Caesar as Lord. And they wouldn't do it. They weren't going to worship Caesar as a, as a God. And they said, listen, we, we pay our taxes. We engage in business. We're peaceful. You really don't have anything against us, but we're not going to worship Caesar as God. And Saturnius said, you got to do it. He said, I'll tell you what. I'll give you, I'll give you 30 days to change your mind. You know what these six guys said? One of them stood up and said, you can do it today or you can do it 30, 30 days from now, but we're not changing our answer. So if you're going to execute us, so you might as well do it now. And he did. And anybody, anybody who would intentionally take innocent people and put them in that situation, that is evil. And that's, what, that's what's being referenced here. He talks about there's going to be an hour of trial. And whenever people read Revelation, it's natural to kind of like, is what I'm reading in Revelation what's happening in the news right now? That's normal. I get it. I'm in the school of thought that Revelation was not written with Americans in mind to watch the news and try to decode everything that's happening. Maybe I'm wrong. Like, I just don't think this letter to that church was about us in that way. Whatever is going on right here, everyone kind of agrees with this. It's divinely orchestrated hardship or judgment by God that he brings about and he's working in situations with the whole point of causing people to turn to him and repentance. And the word is used... describe it it's a test and a test is never about God trying to figure out what's going on inside of us he knows like God's not trying to figure out are you a good enough person are you a good enough Christian that's not it this is a test designed to cause people to be exposed or be to reveal to themselves what their true allegiances are what their true character is the test is for us to learn not for God to learn and who is it really for the inhabitants of the earth and believe it or not that's symbolic language. It means those people whose citizenship is not in heaven. Those people who are not citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. These are folks who have not yet turned to Jesus by faith and repentance. And so he says, he says to this church, listen, hold on, endure. Remember your crown. And crown is reward language, but it's not like something you earn. It's not like you're getting a gold star from Jesus because you were a good enough person. That's not it. It's celebrating rewarding outcomes. It's the outcomes related to faithfulness and ministry. It's the kinds of things that we can show this is what we did with our time. This is what we did with our life. Jesus, I was faithful. I engaged in ministry. And and, and I just, these outcomes, I lay it at your feet as a way to celebrate you. The focus isn't on us, it's on him. The Apostle Paul talked about this imagery a lot, and he often used it to describe all of those people who are in heaven, all of those people who come to faith in Jesus because of his influence or because of our influence. It's like a, it's like a crown. It's special imagery to communicate. It's really about Jesus and his glory and other people, not about us. He describes this kind of weak and wobbly church that has little strength as I'm going to make you a pillar. As a trophy of honor and strength. I want to pause and recognize it expresses itself in different ways. But every culture on the planet for all of human history esteems power and prestige and privilege and wealth. That's okay, I get it. I like those things too. But Jesus doesn't care about that stuff. The stuff that we so often care about, he doesn't care about. And the things that he cares about too often, we don't care about it. He doesn't care about what we bring. He doesn't care about what we have. He doesn't care about what we can do on our own. He esteems and he values those who come to him in humility and are faithful to him. And he says to this church, weak and wobbly, little strength. I'm going to make you a trophy of honor and strength. He uses this imagery. I'm going to give him a new name. That's a new identity. For every person who trusts in Jesus, you are given a new identity. You are given a new status. You are seen as righteous in the same way that Jesus is righteous. We are given his status of righteous, his status of holy. We are given his inheritance. We're brand new in him. And the last imagery that I want to emphasize is New Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus and his people will live and reign together forever. So if you've been here the past few weeks, you know what's coming. What's coming? I'm going to put this whole passage back up on the screen. I'm going to take out all the symbolism and all the references and I'm going to replace it with what it was intending to communicate. So let's read this together. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who is the ultimate authority over all things. What he decides to do or allow, no one can stop. What he decides not to do or not allow, no one can start. I know your deeds See, I have placed before you an opportunity to spread the gospel with guaranteed success that no one can stop. I know you have little strength. That's okay. That you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. I will make those who conspire with the government to bring you harm, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but they're liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I've loved you. There's probably two ways we can read that. You get to pick which way you're going to read it. Two ways we can read that. One is if Jesus is saying, all those people who opposed you, who misunderstood you, who harmed you, I'm going to rub their noses in it. I'm going to vindicate you. I'm going to show them how bad they were and that you're with me. That could be one, that could be one way. But there's another, there's another way to read this. What is it that would cause people to say, oh my goodness, You really are loved by by God. He's with you and you're with him. And they throw themselves down in humility. What could cause that? Repentance. That their hearts are melted by the truth and the grace of Jesus Christ. And that not only, not only are the people in this church united with Christ, but through the spread of the gospel and the work of only what God can do, they are reconciled with people who used to be their enemies. That is amazing. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the severe hardship that is going to come on the whole world to reveal all those who do not trust in or follow me. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your reward for faithfulness and work for the gospel. The one who is victorious I will honor as an example of strength and a permanent member in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them a new identity as citizens of the city of God, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also share my identity and inheritance with them. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you've been here throughout this series, some of the letters we've read to some of these churches, they've been rough, haven't they? They've been doozies. It's kind of nice to get an easy one. (laughs) It's nice that this is an encouraging one. Jesus is just heaping encouragement and praise on this church. I mean, this is the, out of all the churches, this is the one that we want to be like the most, that we would want to be a part of the most. It's good stuff, but believe it or not, there's an unexpected message here too. Let's do a quick recap. Of all the unexpected messages we've seen throughout the series, one is the first week we learned it's better to have no church than an unloving church. And week two, we learned it's better to sometimes let a church suffer than prevent it. We've seen it's possible for a church to stand for Jesus while standing against Jesus. We've seen that it's possible for a church to wrongly value staying together over actually staying faithful. Last week we learned this. It's possible for everyone but Jesus to be convinced that a church is alive and well. And this is our unexpected message this week. A church may be strongest when it's weak. And those of us who we know Christ, who we've, we're relying on His strength, we're resting in Him, we're standing in Him, we're not confident in ourselves, we're confident in Him, we know our weakness is actually a position of strength because we're in Him. But if you're successful, and many of you are, Like if you're good at getting things done and you have high capacity and you can accomplish stuff and you can make money, it means we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to being self-reliant. And if we slip into being self-reliant, God in his grace may cause circumstances of life to conspire to show us just how weak we are. But this is a church. This is a church. They knew they were weak, but they were strong in Jesus. And I guess my question is, what made them different? What made them different from the other churches? Why, why, how is it that they understood that? I'm going to look at verse 8 and 12 from, from this letter. starts off, he says, I know your deeds. Yeah, you have little strength, but I'm going to make you a pillar, right? Throughout this series, I've said this a couple of times, you might remember it. Probably the best way to think about scripture is that um, it is a grand unified true story. God's word is a grand unified true story and there are themes and patterns and we really have to know God's word for us to see the themes and the patterns that show up. If uh, you were to hang out with Pastor Caleb and me like on an afternoon and if you don't remember which one he's the one with the with the big beard. Um, Pastor Caleb and I if you were to hang out with us for an afternoon you probably lose count of and you might get tired of all the times that we reference Seinfeld and the office. We do it all the time. We think we're hilarious. Um if that got on your nerves, you could talk to our wives. They might join you in that. But here's why, here's why, I wanna, here's why I'm bringing this up. The reason we do that is because we're going throughout the day or we're sitting in a meeting, we're supposed to be serious and we're not, whatever. We recognize, we experience something, and we immediately can connect the dots to a scene from one of those shows because we know those shows so well. I want you to know the Bible that well. I want you to know God's Word so... I want you to know it that well because this is the primary way to know Jesus. I want you to know it that well so you can connect the dots. When you experience something in your life, you can connect it back to what you have read in his word. When you are reading something in one part of his word, I want you to be able to connect the dots back to something else in his word. I want you to know it that well to see the patterns and the themes. I think there's a pattern. I think there's a theme in here. We're going to look at that together. And it may not make sense, but I want you just to write this down. I think it comes from the text, although it's not explicitly stated in the text. Who you have is more important than what you have. Who you have is more important than what you have. And you may be thinking, Rick, I think you're still tired from Rich Fest. I don't know how you see that. Let's look at this. How does it start? I know your deeds. What does this communicate? I see you. I know you. You're not overlooked, you're not looked over, you're not forgotten, you're not ignored you are seen. We're going to do something that's going to feel like it's like I'm changing subjects, but in a few minutes you'll see how it all ties together. Let's do a little Bible trivia. If you know the answer, shout it out. If you just want to guess, you can guess too. It's totally safe. All right. Who's the first person in the Bible to ever ascribe a name to God? No one is brave. Hagar, that's right. Hagar, if you don't know who Hagar was, you could start reading about her in Genesis 16. Hagar was a woman. She was an Egyptian. She was not a part of the Israelite community. And she was a slave. She was a woman who knew what it was like for other people to only see what they could get from her. In her world, she existed to be exploited for the agenda of other people. I want you to think about this with me. Remember remember that God's word is a grand, unified, true story, that God made us to really understand ourselves and him and the world through story. He's the master storyteller. What does it communicate to us that God intentionally crafted his story with humanity that this woman, who is from an outside community and who was a slave, that she's the first person to be given the privilege to give God a name, What does that tell us? It tells us from God's perspective, there is no hierarchy of value among people. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have or you don't have. Now, we live like there is. We may not mean to, but sometimes we just slip into it. We live that way. But from God's perspective, that doesn't matter. And this woman who is at the bottom socially, the bottom culturally, the bottom economically, she was given this honor. And if you go and read her story, she was in a moment of crisis. And in this moment of crisis, when she named God, do you know what name she gave him? You are the God who sees. You are with me. You are the God who is always leaning in relationally. It doesn't matter what I don't have. It doesn't matter how low I am. You are with me. That's powerful. And all throughout God's story with people, There have been people who have been encouraged and strengthened simply by knowing that God sees them and he is with them. And this church is just the next group of people in that long list who know that God sees them and he's with them. It doesn't matter how little they have. It doesn't matter what they don't have. They have him. And who you have is far more important than what you have. So let's make it personal. Let's make it practical. Is there anything going on in your life right now that causes you to feel unseen? That causes you to feel alone and ignored? Maybe it's the way people are treating you intentionally or unintentionally. Maybe you've been rejected. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you're going through a major loss in life. I could come up with 10,000 scenarios right now, but every one of them would somehow be related to adversity, uncertainty, or unwanted change. Do you know that Jesus sees you? That he is for you and he wants to be with you? Let me be clear. It doesn't matter if you're fully devoted or full of doubts. He sees you, he is for you, and he wants to be with you. Now, the question is is he with everyone? The answer is no. He sees you, all people. He is for you, all people. Jesus is with those who turn to him in repentance and faith and trust. Those people who say back to him, I want to be with you and I want you to be with me. This church in Philadelphia, weak and wobbly and under-resourced, experiencing serious adversity, what was it about them that caused Jesus just to want to heap encouragement and praise on them? I think their hearts were melted by the love of Christ. I think that their spines were strengthened by the presence of Christ with them. They knew him in that way, and it strengthened them. My question to you is, do you know him like that? I'm not asking how many Bible verses you know. Do you know him like that? I'm not asking how much theology you know. Do you know him like that? I'm not asking about all the things you might list on your religious resume. Do you know Jesus like that? Who you have is more important than what you have. Now, there's something else going on here too. I'm going to go back to to this verse. Jesus says, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. He's using temple imagery here. And this is another theme to pick up on, and it's a chance for us to connect the dots. And this is a theme that, believe it or not, has come up quite a few times throughout this calendar year. If you've been here for like the This Is Church series or the um, First Peter series. In the Old Testament, the temple is always a place, right? The question is, where is it? And the New Testament, is the temple a place? It's not a where, it's a who. It's people. It's those who trust in Christ God is making them, building us into a temple. Peter described it this way, we are living stones being built into a house in which God dwells. And so I want to put up a a passage here that we've read a few times uh, over this year. Maybe you're going to see it afresh. Ephesians chapter two, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place, to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. If you are in Christ, he is in you and he is building us into his temple, his representation of himself to everyone on this planet. I want to draw our attention back to how this began. You are no longer foreigners and strangers. You're no longer foreigners and strangers to God. And we're no longer foreigners and strangers to each other. And that is powerful. That he is in us individually and collecting, collectively. We're not just united with him. We're united with each other. In our church, we have people who have been born and raised in Rochester and lived here all their life. We got, did you know we got people who drive in out of Iowa to come to our services on the weekend? I thought we kept the gate closed, but apparently it's open. We, just kidding. We love you, Iowa. We got people in our church from Syria, Uganda, Australia, Cambodia, Canada, from the East Coast, from the West Coast, and everywhere in between. It is no surprise at all, it's not a shock at all, that we'd all live in the same city, Especially if that city provides education and career opportunity and health care. But there is no natural reason that we would all sit in here together, stitched together in unity. This cultural mashup, this mosaic of languages and faces is absurd. Unless, unless the Holy Spirit is doing something in us and with us. Not just building us into new people but building us into a new people. His temple. Do you know what the most natural thing in the world is? The most natural thing in the world is for people to retreat into enclaves of similarity. To retreat into enclaves of similarity ethnically, culturally, ideologically. That's natural. I want you to remember the time that Jesus said, what good is it if people... What good is it if you only love those who love you? The worst people you know do that. You know what he was saying? Big whoop. Not impressive. Not a virtue. Everybody loves the people who already loves them. Everybody loves the people who are like them and who are easy to love. That's natural. It's supernatural. It's supernatural when people come together who have every reason to be divided but they find unity in a new identity in Jesus. And they find unity and a new purpose that comes from Jesus. That's supernatural. And he's saying, remember, who you have is more important than what you have. We have him. And by his grace and by his power and by his work, we have each other. And this church in Philadelphia How did they thrive in the middle of adversity? What made them different? They were truly and deeply with Jesus and each other. They were truly and deeply with Jesus and each other. Is there anything anything that could talk you out of really being with Jesus? Why would we let that continue? Is there anything that could talk us out of really experiencing and moving, community, and moving towards each other. Why would we let that continue? Is there anything that could talk us into allowing a wedge of division to remain between us and anybody else here? Why would we let that continue? Who you have is more important than what you have. There's one more thing I want to focus on. Jesus said to them, see, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And this is language that communicates guaranteed success. You're going to have guaranteed success. Not guaranteed that it's easy, but guaranteed success. And because of that, let's ride with Jesus. Let's be active and let's join him and what he's about. He's saying to this church, you have guaranteed success. And so this is what I want us to write down perseverance isn't passive we're going to be about his business be about what he's about the summer before my 10th grade year in high school my dad for the very first time became a pastor and it was in like this super rural area and out in the country in southern Georgia it was so country one day I was out running and I got attacked by a goat and my dog had to fight the goat that's a story for another time but that's a true story and there's nothing wrong with small, there's nothing wrong with country, there's nothing wrong with rural. But this little tiny church, it was a dead church. Like sometimes we'd have Sunday morning, no one would show up. One time, just one retired couple showed up for service. And my dad was like, is this normal? They're like, yeah, it happens sometimes. He says, so what do you do when you're the only ones who show up? And they say, we just sit in our pew for the hour. Because, you know, we want to show Jesus we're faithful. Like they didn't sit there. And like, read the Bible. They didn't sit there and sing a song. They didn't sit there and pray. They just sat there for an hour in silence and then got up and went home. I guess that's not nothing, but it's not something either. Like, perseverance isn't just showing up, it's being active. Tony Evans is a pastor who I deeply admire. I've respected this man since before I had a driver's license. I love what he says. He says, Church is not for spectators. What was this church in Philadelphia doing while they were enduring? They were getting after the mission. They were getting after the business of Jesus. They were were pursuing and living for the purposes of Jesus, not themselves. And every church has the exact same mission. We might say it with different words, but we all mean the same thing. And how we say it around here is we exist to lead people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. Now you guys know this, at the end of our services each weekend, we read two verses out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you haven't read that whole chapter in a while, go back and read it. And if you do, this is some of what you're going to read. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, Everything that we have, all of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation reconciliation is bringing two parties that were part back together healing broken relationships god has given us this ministry of reconciliation that god was reconciling the world to himself in christ not counting people's sins against them i think it's the greatest line in the whole bible if you are in christ god's not counting your sins against you i don't know about you but i got a lot of sins and i'm not done and i've hung out with some of you i know you're not done with your sins either This is amazing that if you are in Christ, God is not holding your sins against you. And he is committed to who? Come on, that was weak sauce. He's committed to who? There we go. He's committed to us, this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We represent him as though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is what we are about. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the greatest exchange ever. Jesus took what we deserve so that we could have what he deserves. On the cross, Jesus took on all the sin so that when we trust in him, we get all of his righteousness credited to us. And this little church Weak and wobbly, under-resourced, leveraged their time, all that they had, to be about the message of reconciliation, to join Jesus in sharing the gospel with as many people as they could. This church had another nickname. Excuse me, not the church, but the city. The city of Philadelphia had a second nickname. It was called the Gateway to the East they were perfectly positioned in this city because it was the crossroad of two major highways that allowed them um, to be able to share with great success the gospel all over the known world at that time. Imagine if Jesus came to us and he said to us, guys, I'm not going to promise that it's going to be easy. I can't promise you that everything's going to go your way. I can't promise you that the wind's always going to be at your back. I can promise you this. You'll have success if you ride with me. You'll have success if you join me. I'll guarantee success. If you unite with me, unite with each other and live for my purpose. This letter ends the way every letter ends. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And based on this, Based on this line, we have the same serious thesis. We end our message with this each week. Knowing the truth doesn't change anything. Submitting to the truth changes everything. For my friends who never been to Rochester, I like to describe our city like this. You know this. We are the most unlikely member of the fraternity of globally important cities. We're this Midwest town surrounded by cornfields and the world comes to Rochester. You know that. You know we got millions of people who come to our city every year. And kind of like Philadelphia, we are perfectly positioned to be able to make a dent, to be able to make an impact in spreading the gospel, not just here, but around the country and around the world. May we be people whose hearts are melted by the love of Jesus whose spines are strengthened by knowing that He is with us and we are with each other. We have ears to hear and a heart to understand and join Him in what He is about. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank You for making sure we know about this little church. And thank You for making sure that we know about their amazing impact. Maintaining their account, so that we can we could aspire to be like them. Not because we're really chasing after them, but, but we want to be with you. We are so grateful for all that Christ has done for us, in us, and with us. God, may we be with you. By your power, may we truly be with each other. And would you use us to draw many, many people to yourself. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.